Hey, well, good morning, everybody. Happy Easter. If you are a follower of Jesus this morning, Easter represents the hope that you have. And if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, Easter is the reason that you should become one this morning. The truth of the resurrection is the hinge upon which the story of the world pivots. There is nothing more important to, your, to our world, to your family, to you, to me, to our church, uh, to creation than the resurrection of Jesus. And I'm going to try really hard to make that case for you this morning. It was the resurrection of Jesus that convinced the early followers of Jesus that he was the Son of God, that he was more than a prophet. It wasn't his teaching that convinced them. It wasn't any of the other miracles that he did. It wasn't even the Bible that that fully convinced them. The New Testament hadn't even been written yet. It was the resurrection and the resurrection alone that convinced them. And the resurrection of Jesus has been convincing people ever since. And many people assume that the only record of Jesus' resurrection is found in the Bible, and they couldn't be more wrong. For example, the Jewish historian Josephus documents the account of the crucifixion and the rumors of Jesus' resurrection. There are many, many extra-biblical resources that we have that document the claim of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Further, To say that we believe in the resurrection of Jesus only because the Bible tells us so is simplistic and reductionist. Uh, It's far more substantive than that. We believe in the resurrection because Matthew, a first century Jew, documented the life of Jesus and his resurrection. We believe because Mark, a first century Greek who was good friends with Peter, interviewed him and wrote down everything that Peter had reported. Uh, and, and believed it was substantive. We believe because Luke, a doctor, a physician who was also Greek, traveled around the world with the Apostle Paul and came to the conclusion that he had met enough people, interviewed enough people, uh, that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead had to be true. We believe because James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, became absolutely convinced that Jesus was the Son of God. To put that in perspective, what would your brother have to do to convince you that he was the Son of God? And I want to point out that James didn't believe during Jesus' three-year ministry. He didn't believe when any of his miracles were done. He didn't believe because of his teaching. It was only after Jesus' resurrection from the dead that his brother James uh, signed up and began to follow Jesus. We believe because Paul, an early skeptic of Christianity, intent on doing away with the early church, tells us clearly that he himself was an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus and that Jesus in his resurrected body appeared to multiple crowds as large as 500 people. We believe because in the two letters that the Apostle Peter left the church in which he states expressly that he himself saw Jesus rise from the dead. Here's what I want us to see. These men are documenting what they saw and what they heard. They're not telling us what they believed. They're telling us what they saw with their own two eyes. Further, 
We believe because Jesus fulfilled literally hundreds of prophecies from the Old Testament regarding the coming Messiah. And I want to help us put that in perspective. So let's look at what would the odds be that Jesus fulfilled just eight prophecies from the Old Testament. So here's an analogy to help us think about that. Imagine that we all took a road trip to Texas and we took truckload after truckload of silver coins to the state of Texas, enough truckloads to bury the entire state in two feet of coinage. And then we randomly picked one marked coin and we put a mark on it and we kind of threw that out there and sent somebody who was blindfolded out and told them, hey, we want you to, you know, work your way through these coins until you just, we want you to pick up one coin. We want that one coin to be the marked coin that we put in that pile. That would be the same odds of Jesus fulfilling just eight prophecies from the Old Testament. And yet, we know that Jesus fulfilled literally hundreds of those. And maybe you're here and you say, well, you know, he could have manipulated that. But you can't manipulate things like where you're born, who your parents are, or who is in your genealogy. And one of the things that amazes me about the writers of Scripture is how willing they are to document their own skepticism and their own unbelief. In other words, it's not this fairy tale deal where everyone just magically believes and it's neat and it's tidy. In fact, when Luke opens up his gospel, he says things like this. He says, look, I carefully researched this. I talked to eyewitnesses. I went to great lengths to put together a factual and an orderly account. Now, that doesn't sound like, you know, uh, once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away, or once upon a time, right? This is the language of a courtroom, and it's meant to be, not a fairy tale. Further, these men don't document themselves as heroes, but instead they document themselves as doubters, as deniers, and as despairers who unfollowed Jesus and then refollowed him only and only after they witnessed his resurrection from the dead. And there's a lot of ways that people try to discount this. I remember years ago when I was in college, I had a professor that was talking about why he didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Now, mind you, the class had nothing to do with that. He just liked to, you know, share his knowledge. And he said this, the people, he said, here's why I don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. The people back then were unsophisticated. They were uneducated. They were naive. They may have believed that Jesus had really died and been resurrected, but we all know that can't be true. And he sounded so confident, so convinced, and he was exactly wrong. These early believers expected Jesus to do what all people expect dead people to do. You know what that is? Stay dead. I say this every Easter. Nobody was expecting nobody. 
Nobody was expecting nobody. Nobody was outside the tomb on Easter morning, you know, waiting on Jesus to rise from the dead with a countdown. Okay, hey, cue, you know, 10, 9, 8, cue the sun, 7, 6. Nobody was out there doing that. You know why? Because none of them expected a resurrection from the dead, even though Jesus had plainly told them that that was going to happen. Now, each Easter for the past several years, we've been looking at the resurrection through the eyes of a different, uh, of, of a different man who documented this, right? And today we want to look at the resurrection through the eyes of this disciple that we've been looking at named Thomas. And before we dive into that, I do want to give credit where credit is due. Back in January... My staff team and I were over in the theater room. We were uh, in a virtual church conference with churches all over central Indiana. We were streaming over there. And a pastor by the name of Albert Tate actually walked through this story of Thomas. And Albert is a black preacher. So that means he's cool. He's hip. He's got rhythm. His delivery was super impressive. I've got none of that, because I'm not a black preacher, right? But I do have his outline, because I wrote it down as he talked. And so my delivery won't be as impressive as his was, but I'm just going to share some of the thoughts that I uh, drew out from his outline. And one of the things he pointed out, rightfully so, is that Thomas sometimes gets a bad rap. Uh, yeah, he doubted that Jesus had been raised from the dead, but again, wouldn't you? Any of us would. In fact, the only reason that the other disciples in that room didn't believe or believed was because they'd already had the experience with Jesus that he was now giving to Thomas. They'd already had their moment where he said, hey, touch my side, see me, you know, know that I'm alive. They'd already experienced that moment, but we're told in the text Thomas was away. He was gone. He wasn't with them when that happened. And furthermore, uh, Thomas was not the only doubter in the room that day, and I'll tell you why. Because in the beginning of the story, the doors are locked. They are huddled and hiding together in a room for fear of their lives. I mean, so even though they'd seen the resurrection, resurrected Jesus, they had, they had no faith that he would protect them or help them or see them through this. Thomas was not the only doubter in that room. That room was filled with doubters. The difference was Thomas was the only one who had the courage to admit his doubts. And here's what I love so much about Thomas's story. Thomas's story, God's grace means the same thing for Thomas that God's grace means for any of us. God's grace means that we are more, every one of us, than our worst mistake. That our worst mistake doesn't have to follow us. Our worst mistake doesn't have to, find, to define us. Such is the grace of God. And notice something else about Thomas. He looked at Jesus as the cure to his doubts. In other words, he said things like this, show me Jesus. Let me touch Jesus. I want to see Jesus. He doubts while looking to Jesus. Something else that's really incredible about this story, Jesus doesn't come through the door. We're told in this story that the doors are locked. So in all likelihood, this means that Jesus in his glorified body literally walked through the wall. 
So if he's in his glorified body, why does his body still have the scars, the holes in his wrists and his ankles from the crucifixion? And why does his body still have these holes in his side and in his hands? I think Jesus would say, because I knew that Thomas would need to see them. See, we have, enough, we have a God who has enough grace for us to have a hole in his hand so that we can see it. He is always extending his nail-scarred hands to us. He would say to Thomas, come to me, Thomas, with your doubts. My hand has provided for you and for your doubts. And there is something else very important about those scars that we're going to talk about near the end of our message today. And so as a result of those scars, Thomas would look at Jesus and he would say, my faith in Jesus was resurrected when I saw my resurrected friend. And I want you to notice something else. Thomas did not deny the love of God because he saw pain and suffering in the world. See, sometimes people will say, I can't believe in a good God in a world where bad things happen to good people. And maybe sometimes what they really mean is this, I can't believe in a good God that would let bad things happen to me, right? But I want you to know, check this out, Thomas, like the other disciples, saw the worst thing imaginable happen to the best person he'd ever known. See, these early believers didn't believe in a fairy tale God who just sends rainbows and lollipops. Their God was not tethered to a God who does not allow bad things to happen to good people because they watched the best person they'd ever known suffer in a way that was unimaginable to them. Why? Why did Jesus do that? We're told very clearly in the Bible to pay the ransom for sin. And so when Thomas looked at those scars, he says, My Lord and my God. Now listen, every life, every life is meant to have a my Lord and my God moment. We've been praying as a staff. We've been praying as elders. We've been praying as a leadership team that some of you this morning would have a my Lord and my God moment, that you would come to understand Jesus this morning in exactly that same way, and that you would say with Thomas, my Lord and my God. You know, I remember several years ago, uh, Jackie's dad was in the hospital and he was dying. And, you know, we'd tried for a long time to talk to him about Jesus, and uh, he just wouldn't listen. He'd, I mean, he'd kind of listen politely, but he wouldn't engage. He wouldn't interact. It was clear he really wasn't interested. And um, in the hospital, uh, I had the opportunity to share Jesus with him again. And uh, when he was confronted with the beauty and the majesty of Jesus in that moment, he prayed to receive Christ in that moment. And as soon as we were finished praying, I looked down at him and he had tears running out of his eyes. And I knew that the decision took because when he was confronted with the beauty and the majesty of Jesus, do you know what he said to us? He said, I've wasted my whole life. I've wasted my whole life. Now what would make him say that? 
only the beauty and the majesty of our Jesus. When he saw the beauty and majesty of Jesus and realized that he could have made, he could have been a part of the story of Jesus with his life, and he realized that he, he wouldn't be able to be that, he knew in that moment, right? Every life is meant to have a my Lord and my God moment. And I want you to notice too that Jesus is not freaked out or intimidated by Thomas's doubts. In fact, he accommodates Thomas's doubts by showing Thomas's scars. He let Thomas actually touch them. I want to say a few words about doubt. Doubt can become the pavement for a strong belief, a strong faith. Uh, doubt is actually evidence of your belief. Listen, everybody doubts. Doubts are part of humanity. Even atheists have doubts. Well, what if I'm wrong? You know, what if there really is a God? No matter what side of the fence you're on, everybody has to struggle with doubts, right? And we would just say this, when you have doubts, take those doubts to the community of faith. Take those doubts to your church. Take, the, take those doubts to your Christian friends. Speak them out loud. Because here's what will happen if you do eventually you will find a satisfying answer for your doubt. And you know what that will do? That will provide the pavement for a deeper and a wider faith. See, wrestling with doubt actually makes us stronger believers. And you may say, well, pastor, how do you know that doubts lead to a strong faith? Well, I don't have to look any further than Thomas. See, church tradition tells us that Thomas's faith became so strong that he took the gospel of Jesus all the way to the country of India. He was that convinced by the resurrected Jesus. In fact, he was so convinced of the resurrection that he was willing to die for it, to put his life on the line. Because church tradition also tells us that while he was in India, jealous Hindu priests hired soldiers who speared him to death. Now, so think back to our story, right? Thomas touches the spear wound of Jesus without knowing that one day he would also have to bear the wound of a spear. This is why Tertullian, an early church father, said about the early Christians, no man would be willing to die like that unless he knew the truth. So what about you and me? What if we believe that the resurrection is true this morning? Uh, what if you believe that Jesus died to save you, to redirect your eternal trajectory toward God? Well, then that means that, first of all, you believe that God has accepted you uh, out of the re rejection of his son. It also means that you believe that God has pardoned you and poured out your punishment on his son. And so what that means is every, every one of us in the room who believe that, we've been made a part of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was the primary uh, uh, thing that Jesus talked about in his ministry. And one of the words that's used to describe the kingdom of God is this word, shalom. 
And it means absolute wholeness, absolute well-being. Physical well-being, spiritual well-being, economic well-being, relational well-being. The complete healing of not just our bodies, but our hearts, our minds, our soul. So shalom in the kingdom of God means this. It means we will be completely at peace with God completely at peace with one another, completely at peace with our world, and completely at peace within ourselves. And if you know this about your future, it will absolutely change how you live in the present. And so I want to spend a few minutes proving that. So I want to ask a few questions. Why do you think it's so hard to face suffering? Why is it so difficult to face disease or disability? Why is it that when so many of us look back on 2020, there's so much pain associated with that? Why is it so hard to face the loss of a loved one? Why is it so hard when we lose a job or when we struggle financially? I'll tell you why. It's so hard... Because we think that this world is the only world we're ever going to have. It's so hard because we think that this body is the only body we're ever going to have. It's so hard because we believe that money is the only wealth that we will ever know. That's why it's so hard. But if Jesus is risen, then none of that is true. Some of you may have heard the story of Johnny Erickson Tata. She was in a diving accident when she was 17 years old. And ever since, she's been a quadriplegic. She's been paralyzed from the neck down. And while she was trying to come to terms with this horrible accident, she found great consolation and hope in her belief in the resurrection of Jesus. Early in her paralysis, she went to a Christian convention in her wheelchair, and the speaker at this convention asked everyone to kneel down in submission to God. And, uh, and then uh, she began to weep, but not for the reason that you would think. Because here's what she says, with everyone kneeling, I certainly stood out and I couldn't stop the tears. But she wasn't crying out of self-pity. She was crying at the beauty and the majesty of the picture of heaven that she saw lived in, out in that room with hundreds of people bowed down in submission to God. And then she wept even harder at another thought. Sitting there, she writes, I was reminded that in heaven I will be free to jump up, to dance, to kick, to do aerobics. And the first thing I plan to do on my resurrected legs is to drop on grateful, glorified knees. I will myself quietly and gratefully kneel at the feet of my Jesus. And then she adds this, I 
with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and absolutely no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light and bright, clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine, she says, the hope that the resurrection gives to someone who is injured like me? But it isn't just her. Friends, all of our bodies disappoint us. All of our bodies refuse to hold up under the pressures of this world. And it's only the resurrection that can guarantee new bodies, new minds, and new, new hearts. Because these bodies, these resurrected bodies will be able to bear the burdens that our bodies cannot so in the resurrection, if you can't dance and you long to dance in the resurrection, one day you'll dance perfectly. Perfect tens from all of the judges. If you're lonely in the resurrection, you will know perfect love. If you're empty, only in the resurrection will you be fully satisfied. If your life just feels ordinary, the resurrection brings with it the extraordinary grace and love of our Savior. Listen, friends, there is nothing better than ordinary life except that it's always going away and it's always falling apart. Every one of us knows this. I mean, ordinary life is work and chores and mundane. But it's also hugs and dancing, food and drink, mountains and oceans. It's this world which God loves so much that He gave His only Son so that we and the rest of this ordinary world could be redeemed, made whole, made perfect so that we could experience His extraordinary love. And if you know that this world is not the only world, that your body is not the only body that you will have, if you know that your money is not the only wealth that you will ever have, then you can face the worst thing no matter what gets taken from you, even life in a wheelchair with no feeling from the shoulders down. See, the resurrection means, friends, that we can look forward with hope to the day when our suffering will be gone. You know, when Jesus showed Thomas and the other disciples his hands and his feet, he was showing them his scars. You know, the last time they saw Jesus, they thought those scars were ruining their lives and all of their plans. See, the disciples prior to that thought, they were part of a presidential campaign. They thought their candidate was going to win and they would all have an inside track and they would all be on his cabinet. But when they saw those nails going into the hands and feet of Jesus, they believed those nails had wrecked all of their dreams and all of their plans for the future. And when they saw that spear go into his side, they believed those wounds had destroyed their very lives. And now Jesus is showing them uh, these scars even in the resurrected body that those scars are still there. Why does that matter? Why is that so important? 
Because those scars, which seemed so tragic and destructive, now brought more glory to Jesus and, and saved and restored them. Those scars, which they thought had ruined their lives, became their very salvation. They reminded the disciples, just as they remind us, the length that Jesus went to for them. Those scars that they thought had ruined their lives had actually saved their lives. And remembering those scars would one day help some of them endure their own suffering and their own scars. You know, those scars would remind them of the love of God in their own suffering in a broken world. And I just want to remind you this morning, friends, that those scars aren't just there for them. They're there for us. They're there to remind us that one day all of our hurts, all of our sadness, all of our disappointment, all of our scars will one day, will one day only strengthen our faith and enhance our daylight that the joy of our glory will be that much greater for every scar that you and I bear. We serve a God who can take scars and transform them into glory, into hope. And it gets even better. Paul tells us that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you and I who've said yes to him, who are his followers. And what that means is that you and I don't have to simply settle for our own fear and our own weakness and our own frailty. That we can cash those things in for his strength, his help, and his hope. Every single day, today, right now. This is why the same apostle who wrote those words would say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Why? Because he lives and he lives in me and he shares his power with me so that I don't have to live out of my own weakness and brokenness. So I want to challenge every one of us in the room. Live today in light of the resurrection of Jesus and in the joyful dance of grace that flows out of that. Friends, there is nowhere else that you can find grace other than in the presence and the person of Jesus. His resurrection has changed everything. Everything is new right now, today. And all you have to do is say yes to that. Here's what I want to do. I want to invite our team up, and we're going to sing a song together. We're going to worship together in a, in a song called Living Hope. And this, this, the, the lyrics to this music perfectly encapsulate our hope in Jesus, our hope in the good news that he came and that he was raised again to pay the penalty for our sins. And so what I want us to do is as we're worshiping together, I just want us to be mindful of the words. And then once we've worshiped for a moment, I'm going to come back up and I'm going to give you an opportunity to say yes to Jesus. So would you guys just stand together for a moment as we worship? Between us, 
could not climb in desperation I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night then through the darkness your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul the work is finished the end is written jesus christ my living home who could imagine so great a mercy what heart could fathom such boundless grace the god of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame the cross has spoken i am forgiven the king of kings calls me his own beautiful I'm yours forever, Jesus Christ, my living hope. Hallelujah, praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah, death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain.
You know, at the end of his story about Thomas, John says some amazing words. He says, you know, we didn't write down everything that Jesus said or did, but the things that we did write down, in other words, the reason I told you the story of Thomas is so that you might come to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing, you might have life in his name. Now, I'm talking to two different kinds of people this morning. Some of you hear that, and there's something in you that's saying, I've got to do that. I need that life. I need what Jesus came to give me and came to offer me. And there are, there are others of you, and maybe your pulse isn't racing or nothing like that's happening, and you're just thinking, well, that's interesting, but I'm kind of in a journey, and I need a little bit more information. But for those of you, if you're pulse is kind of racing and you just feel compelled that you need that life that Jesus came to offer, I want to give you an opportunity to receive that right now, right here this morning. So if everybody in the room would just bow their heads for just a moment. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're here now. That your resurrection from the dead means that you live and you live to live in us you live to share your grace with us you live to share your power with us you live to lead us and to guide us so God we invite you to do just that we need you Lord Jesus and so we ask you now in this moment to be our forgiver and our leader. We ask you, we acknowledge together that we've gone our own way, we've done our own thing, that we've disregarded you in favor of ourselves. We acknowledge that we're all sinners, that we've fallen short, that we've made up our own rules for our lives instead of living by yours. So we confess that and we're, we receive and accept your forgiveness for that. In the cross, we thank you together that you paid the full, whole um, penalty for all of that, that your pardon is complete. And we need not strive or worry or wonder that you bring security and help and hope. But God, we know too that we need you to not only be our forgiver, but to come into our lives and be our leader as well. God, we, we confess together that we're weak and frail and broken and that we need your strength. We need your help. We need your guidance. We need your grace and your mercy. And it's only if you live within us that you can extend those things to us every single day and help us to live out of those. And so, God, we just thank you for the promise of your word where you have said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, the door to the heart of every human being. And you have promised that if we will open the door of our minds and our hearts to you, that you will come in and that you will make us the men and the women that you want us to be and that you will never leave us and never forsake us. We give you thanks for that. And so we pray these things, we express these thoughts in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, so we're going to um, sing one more song, and then another one of our pastors, Pastor Mike, is going to come up and help us know how we can uh, just respond together to that today, to the grace of our Jesus. So again, stay standing, we're going to sing one more time, and then we'll hear from Pastor Mike.